Our sermon passage today comes from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 30. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is God's word to us this morning. Our sermon this morning is entitled Strike the Shepherd. And what we will see in this passage is that indeed Jesus must die. He must be sacrificed. He must be crucified for the redeeming plan of the Father to move forward. And we see that when The shepherd is struck. It will cause many to stumble and fall away. And it will cause his flock to run to him in faith. The plan of God moves forward through the suffering of the son. And the benefits of the kingdom come to us only through the suffering. Of the Son. Along the way, we're also going to learn, I think, some beautiful ways to help us in prayer. 
And so this morning, let's look at this passage together. If you want to take notes, the first point is scattered sheep. Scattered sheep. And really the key verse from, for this point is found in verse 31. Verse 30 begins, when they had sung a hymn, meaning finished their Passover celebration, they left that room and went to the Mount of Olives. And on the mount, Jesus said to them, you will fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Now, this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 13 that we read earlier. And every time one of these Old Testament quotes pops up, there is always this sense of Jesus is quoting what's being fulfilled to give us confidence that God's word always comes to pass. But, there's all, but that's not just the simple answer there. There's always something else going on as well. And ultimately, in quoting from Zechariah chapter 13, Jesus is saying, The shepherd will be struck this evening. He will be. Jesus is speaking of himself. And he's saying that that when the strike comes, there will be ripple down effects to the sheep that will cause some to fall away. It will cause some to be confused. It will cause some to deny. It will cause some to doubt. But ultimately, it will be redeeming for my sheep. Now, what I find dumbfounding is this. Jesus looks at them and goes, hey, tonight you're going to fall away. This is their teacher. He's their guide. He's their Messiah. He's their Savior. They've given up everything to follow him. And how do they respond? Nah, not us. We're good. No, not us. We got this. That's, that's a little bit funny, guys. I know you've been locked up for a week, but like... They're like, no, we got this. I mean, Judas just betrayed him. They saw that. They saw that unfold. And, you know, led by Peter's bravado, be what may, I will not deny you. So Jesus says to Peter, well, I'll tell you what, actually, before the sun rises tomorrow, you will deny me three times. Now, so there's 10 disciples left. This would have been one of those great times to just keep your mouth shut kind of move to the back and let Peter stick his whole leg in his mouth, right? Like this, this would have been those moments. But the passage says, they all joined him in the we will not deny you, okay? Now, I think there's a couple things we need to notice from this. One, that's the right impulse. The right response is, Jesus, we won't deny you. Like, we will cling to you. We will be faithful to you. Like, that's good. Let's take that with us. Yet, they seem to not understand 
That what's about to happen will shake them to their core. That what's about to happen will expose all of their fears and their doubts and their guilt and their needs and their brokenness. They don't seem to understand the depth of what's about to unfold. And they certainly have no understanding of how much help they need from the Lord to remain faithful to the Lord. Like, I'm never a big fan of sermons and Bible lessons that are like character studies and it's like, go be like. But I think I'm okay with doing it negatively, okay? So don't be Peter. That's part of this sermon today. Love the Lord, want to follow the Lord, want to be faithful to the Lord, but understand, left to yourself, you are not capable to do all the things that the Lord will call us to do as we follow him. We need his help. But also notice this. There's something radically different between the way Jesus is relating to Peter and the other disciples here and the way he related to Judas. So if you were with us last week, or two weeks ago, Judas denied Jesus, or excuse me, betrayed Jesus. He got 30 pieces of silver to turn him over to the authorities. Jesus looked at him and said, the one whose hand is in the cup with me is my betrayer. Go and do what you must do. Which, which cast a sense of like definitiveness, right? It cast a sense of like, a line has been drawn in the sand and Judas has done something that's evil and has changed forever. Now notice how Jesus treats Peter and the other 10. He says, when I rise from the dead, meet me in Galilee. When I rise from the dead, I'm going to go to Galilee. Implied, you should meet me there. That's a different response, isn't it? So lest we cast Jesus as this, this kind of terse taskmaster, like you got, you got one misstep and I'm forever done with you. That is not how Jesus is being played out here, right? He begins. You will fall away because of me this night. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Implying what? If I go before you, it implies you're coming too, right? So Jesus is saying to them, like, look, you'll deny me. You'll live. You'll grieve. You'll be sorrowful. You'll doubt. You'll feel broken. I'm going to rise from the dead and you should come meet me in Galilee. He's basically saying the fruits of my death are available to you. Come to Galilee. So ultimately, this striking of the shepherd and this scattering of the sheep is going to work its way out into a people of faith who are connected to Christ, 
A people of faith who find their redemption not in their goodness, righteousness, or faithfulness, but a people of faith who find their redemption in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus. I'll be in Galilee. You follow me there. It's an invitation for the people who denied him to find forgiveness and hope and restoration in him. So certainly the death of Jesus was going to work out and separate Judas's from Peter's. It was going to work out and separate those who never knew him, who were those who would betray him, who only were using him for their gain from those who knew him, loved him, followed him, and yet were imperfect and sinful. And by the way, friends, those are the only two categories, okay? There's the reject him and be left in our rebellion and sin and evil, or there is the know him and be delivered from our rebellion and evil and sin while we struggle with our imperfection and rebellion and evil and sin. And anybody else that's pretending they're in that special got it all together category, just don't revel as their bubble bursts and their life unfolds in front of you. That category doesn't exist. It's a facade. So really, guys, this is our gospel moment here. This passage pushes us to say, when it is challenged who Jesus is, when it is a struggle for me to trust the goodness of God, when I couldn't sing that song y'all just sang because everything's been so hard, when I feel like a fraud because I don't have it all together the way I wrongly perceive that everyone else has it together, when I don't know how to move forward, will I look to myself Accept the condemnation that Satan is trying to speak against me or will I look to Galilee because I believe the death and resurrection of Jesus has hope for me? Friends, sometimes the only faith we can muster up is look to Galilee. But I trust that the Lord will meet us in that and will nurture us and feed us and help us to, to look to him. Now, this whole thing about I'm going to rise and I'm going to go to Galilee is so, so hopeful because this isn't a one and done Savior, right? This isn't a don't make me count to three Savior. I'm so thankful that the Lord gave me more. And I don't care how you parent your kids. I'm not even trying to speak to that. I'm just saying, well, maybe I do care, but that's not for this sermon. And I'm completely off my notes now. Um, there's hope and there's gospel in Meet Me in Galilee. And as a father who's prone to anger, 
I'm often convicted by how long-suffering and compassionate the Lord is to his people. I mean, I mean can you imagine, like, sitting with a group of kids, and you're like, oh, I would never do that. And you're just like, oh, my gosh, you have no idea. And you just want to, like, thump them on the head. Let us be shaped by the way Jesus is compassionately telling them. I'm going to die, you're going to scatter, but I'm going to rise and I'm going to go to Galilee and you're going to follow me there. Come to Galilee. Second point this morning. Weakness and prayer. Weakness and prayer. Verses 36 through 46 are Jesus facing his own humanity, Jesus facing his own struggles, Jesus facing his own temptation, Jesus wrestling with the, the being human while also being son of God. And what we see is Jesus facing great temptation and great weakness with intentional prayer. So we see Jesus knowing his temptation, knowing his weakness, and taking that to the Lord to communicate with the Lord about those realities. And what I would say to us today, if this is how the Son of God faces weakness and temptation, I believe it's intended to have a, a modeling trajectory for us as well. It's intended to, to teach us as well how to face weakness and temptation. And the answer is, by going directly to the Lord. By going directly to the Lord. So let's look at this together. So Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Most scholars would say that Gethsemane was a garden in, within the Mount of Olives. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Watch with me. I believe it's... And so Jesus goes a little farther, falls on his face, and begins to cry out to the Father. Now, Peter and James and John don't watch, but they sleep. So he comes back to them, finds them sleeping. He says, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so there's that turn of Jesus passing this on to them as well, saying, pray with me. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, 
If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. So Jesus knows what's coming to him. In the passage, it's called the cup. He says, Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. If there be another way, let this cup pass from me. He knows what's coming to him is the rightly deserved wrath of God against a sinful humanity. He knows that's the cup that he's about to drink. And so he's pleading with the Father. He's pleading with the Father to help him endure what is coming, what is the will of the Father. He's pleading for the Father to give him a spirit of submission that would say, if it's your will, I will drink it. If it's your will, your will be done. And I think the key interpretive thing here that he's speaking, I would argue, for himself and for the disciples is in verse 41. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Flesh meaning all the parts of our being that move us and stir us and motivate us. And Jesus is effectively modeling and doing this. He is praying as a way to battle the flesh. He's praying as a way to see his willing spirit overcome his weak flesh. So we could just simply say, how did Jesus, in these last hours of his life, in his last hour of earthly freedom, hours of earthly freedom. How did he spend it? He spent it crying out to the Lord, asking the Lord to help him to be faithful. And I would simply say to us, by the way, he was faithful. He did not sin. He did drink the cup. It was the will of the Lord and Our salvation was purchased through him. But I would argue that if Jesus battles weakness through prayer, then how much more should we do the same? How much more should our lives be characterized by battling our weaknesses with prayer? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because everybody would raise their hand and there's too many people in here for that to happen. But how many of us struggle with praying? Yes, we all do. What I want us to take from this is 
The Lord welcomes our praying. And the only way I would argue to battle sin, temptation, spiritual weakness, loss, grief, hurt, brokenness, by faith is to do so by crying out to the Lord and asking for him to be present with us, to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, and to help us. So the takeaway from this passage is learn the power of prayer in the face of weakness and temptation and brokenness. So so therefore, I have some practical things I want us to consider under that point. This means that our weakness and temptation and brokenness is an opportunity to pray. Our weakness, our temptation, our brokenness is an opportunity to pray. What I pick up on is that temptation and struggle that you would be mortified if it showed up on these screens right here. You know, Jamie Mosley struggles with that one. You all have one, right? If you're like me, you may have a list of seven or eight. But when I face those temptations, my first inclination is to try to hide that from the world and from the Lord. From the world and from the Lord. I mean, it would make total sense for Jesus, the Son of God, who literally came with one major job, to bear the wrath of God for a sinful humanity. On the evening that he's facing that, when he doesn't want to face that, it would have made total sense for him to stay at the, the, the Passover party and just pretend that he wasn't struggling. Well, there's two problems with that. One, the Lord knew already. And two, pretending that he wasn't struggling wasn't going to catapult faithfulness. So we see Jesus in the garden basically saying, Father, I don't want to drink the cup. Father, if there's another way to get to the end of the road, let's pick that way. Nevertheless, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Like Jesus is owning the struggle as a means of battling for faithfulness. And he's owning it to the Lord, to the Lord. If we get anything out of the gospel, it's this. We are never clean enough. And the Lord welcomes our sin and our brokenness and our dirt. And we don't have to pretend we're something we're not. We take all that to him and we let him go to work. So I would argue that the first step toward leaning into prayer would be more honesty about our temptations, our doubts, our fears, and our brokenness. Because the Lord knows. Why are we trying to shut him out? That, that makes no logical sense. And yet that's how we all function. 
Second, I think there's like this overly puritanical ethic that runs through the church, but nobody lives up to it. And that overly puritanical ethic is that we all wake up at 5 a.m. and we go to our prayer closet. I don't even know what that is, but we go there and we spend at least a solid hour agonizing in prayer before we ever think about coffee or kids or food or walking the dog or anything else. Hour in the prayer closet. And then because we did it early enough and stayed long enough, we're going to have a great day. And then if we went to the Y and worked out and got one of those little spiritual vitamins on the way out, then our day will be rosy fun. Nobody lives up to that ethic. I contend that if you did, your life would be more filled with Christ and more filled with joy. But I also contend that Jesus will meet with me about 9.30 every morning. It doesn't have to be before the sun comes up. So a lot of the reason we don't pray is because there's this overly perfected ethic that we think we're supposed to live up to. And so then we might say something like this. Well, I only pray when I struggle. Okay, I would hope that you would pray when you're not struggling, but it's a great place to start. Like pick your besetting sin. Anger. What else do people struggle with? (laughs) Shout them out one at a time. Just kidding. But pick it. What if every time you struggle with that, you turn that into an opportunity to pray? Your life would be filled with time with the Lord, right? So there's this almost sense of like, if it's not proactive and I'm not journaling about it and it's not warm and fuzzy, then that's just like reactive. And reactive faith is not for really good Christians. Any faith is for people of Jesus. So start there. Start with your struggle. Start with your doubts. Start with your sadness. Start with your hurts. Take those to the Lord. The act of faith is taking them to the Lord and talking to him about it, okay? Number three. I believe that getting started is the challenge in most of our praying. I believe that just getting started is the challenge for most of our prayer. If you just make yourself start, like, Lord, I don't even want to pray right now, but I come to you in Jesus' name. Like, just start there. Just get started. I think once we get started, like, things move forward. So a couple examples of this. Um, Over Christmas holiday, my wife and I had this long list of things that had to be done at our house. No one with any form of a brain would want to take those tasks like 20 years of credit card statements. Anybody want to go through those? No. Got to shred them though, because they got, you know, whatever, okay? But, but here, was, here was our commitment. We're going to give that task 30 minutes. You know what happened with every one of the tasks? We got started, and then it wasn't as bad as we thought it was, and then we wanted to finish, and then, you know, a couple days later, we were done. But the reality is, 
The challenge is getting started. This morning, I decided to test my own sermon on myself. I was my own lab rat. So I got in the shower, let the water get hot, and I started praying. I started praying about this sermon. I started praying for you. I started praying for myself. I started praying for my family. And before you know it, you know where I was? Cold water. Like what I thought was going to be a 45-second to two-minute endeavor drained the water heater, okay? The, the, one of the greatest challenges for us to spend more time engaging with the Lord is just getting started. It's just getting started. That was number three, right? That was funny. It was very funny. It was very funny. Number four. Something that I found very helpful is a book called The Common Rule by Justin Early. You don't even have to read the book. I'm going to give it to you right here. He is a kind of high-powered, successful corporate attorney in D.C. who is a Christian. And he said he, he realized the only way he would stop and pray during the day is if he would do something to change his physical posture. So he's like, I don't care. He's like, I sit at a desk all day. So I just decided that I was going to make myself three times a day turn my chair away from my desk and get down on my knees and put my elbows in the chair and pray for a couple minutes. And he's like, I, I, he's, I just found that if I made myself change the activity and the posture, the mind and the heart and the soul would follow along. You know, So I don't... I'm just trying to help us see, like, okay, we can, we can lean into this. Number five, pray with others. Pray with others. Some scholars believe that when Jesus said, watch with me, he didn't really mean look over the hill. He meant join me in the battle, right? Join me in the battle. Pray with others. I mean, have you ever been so at the end of yourself that you have no idea what to say except maybe, like, Lord, help but then somebody else has come along and started praying, and you're like, yeah, that's good, amen, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, pray with others. Pray with others. And finally, in this story, Jesus gives us a pattern to ask the Lord for things very specifically. He's particularly focused on drinking the cup of God's wrath and wishing that he didn't have to. But here's the pattern. Lord, if it be possible, I ask for whatever you will, let it be so. And friends, I think under that banner, if it be possible, but whatever you will, let it be so. I think we can ask the Lord for all kinds of things. Like, are there certain things that you just feel a little weird praying about? You know what I mean? Like, if you've got a friend whose marriage is falling apart, like, I'll pray for that. Like, the Lord would, 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 like, I know how to ask the Lord to do things there, right? But, like, what if you want to raise at work? Do you get tied up in knots trying to figure out how to pray about that? I do. There's a heresy out there that says we can just name it and claim it and tell God what to do. That's not true. 
There's a lie out there that if we're just pure enough and we just ask God to do it, it'll happen. That likewise is not true. But there's also a lie that says, you're a worm, you're worthless. Jesus did die for you, so you got that going for you. And you just take the coals of life that he gives you and you grit your teeth and you endure. That's also not the biblical way. God loves his children. God is for his children. God wants to bless his children. And in that space in between sin, I know how to pray against sin and just biting my lip and enduring whatever, there's a whole host of requests that God could answer or not answer. And either way, he would be faithful, he would be good, he would be caring. And yet, Jesus is modeling that we can talk to the Lord about those things. So I think if under that banner, Lord, I have some things I want to bring before you. But whatever you will, may your will be done. That I would just free you under that banner to start talking to the Lord and start asking and start encouraging. I mean... Honestly, I think a lot of us don't pray because we're afraid that maybe that's not something we're supposed to ask for, right? Put it under this banner and freely ask. So I want to end this way. Our praying is never the basis of God's love for us. Like we're never going to pray enough that God loves us because we prayed enough. And we're never gonna fail to pray so much that God quits loving his children. Yet, prayer is where we connect with the Lord in this real life and in our struggles. And even believing that we should turn to him and saying, help please, that's faith. And the more faith there is, the more we're going to experience the power and the love of the Lord. And I hope some of these things that we've shared today will stir us forward. Our good news, Christ drank the cup that we would have life in his name. So our Father and our God, we pray now that you would take these words And as much as they're faithful and good and right, we pray you would help us to believe them and walk in them. Help us, O oh God. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.